0: If you want to support this podcast and get a full ad-free episode, sign up to HeadStuff Plus. Welcome, gather round the fireside and listen to a tale of yon McCool cool, cool coloured. Dear, draw the sorrows grow, new wail from giants right down to fairies, about the drooping and solitary, and those who are sometimes scary. Anything goes by the fireside, yeah. Fireside, the puka fireside, the marrow fireside. Kings and queens, fat and heroes, don't you run from the fun? There's no need to hide. Sit by the fireside. Fireside. Hello, and welcome to Fireside, the Irish storytelling podcast. Each episode of Fireside, we take a story from folklore or mythology. We retell it, have a chat about the tale itself and about the craft, culture and history of storytelling. My name is Kevin C. Olihan. I am your host and your Fireside Bard. Welcome to episode 57 of Fireside, the Irish Storytelling Podcast. We are coming to you, as always, from the beautiful surroundings of the Headstuff Podcast Network studio here in Dublin. It is fantastic to be coming to you on this very... Well, I don't know when you're listening to this, probably in the warmth of your bed, but I tore myself away from my bed this morning to a very, very cold and frosty morning here in Dublin. It was the first, for those who don't live here, Dublin uh, is cold a lot and is rainy a lot, but because it's usually so rainy, we don't really usually get a huge amount of snow or anything, but we can get frost and it is a very frosty morning today to the degree where uh, I get uh, the Dublin bikes which are the bikes that you can dock and kind of rent and put in other docks and uh, I got one this morning and there was frost on the saddle of it, is it called a saddle? seat, the bike seat anyway there was frost on it that I was feared I would then become stuck to it So it's lovely to be in the studio now, to be telling a lovely warm tale on this very cold morning. And we are continuing the Ulster cycle. We are in the midst of the tawn, and we are in part four. Where are we right now? If this is your first time listening, you're very welcome. Uh, Please, please don't have this be the first part. I think it would be very unusual if that was, anyway, if you thought... Ah yes, this one, this episode 57, that is a part four of a thing. But if this is your first listening, at least listen to the first part of the tawn, if not the very first episode. One all the way down, scrolling all the way down to the bottom there. Which is great, as always, to be able to say that we have that many episodes built so far. But here we are, part four. So what has happened so far? And of course, if you're a returning listener, you're welcome back. Thank you for your continued support. Please do continue to follow us on Instagram at firesidebard. Bard. Um, it's the best way to contact me. Thank you for all your messages that you send on. It is so, so gorgeous to hear Everyone's different experiences of the podcast, the places they've listened to it, how they found it, why they came to it. I love hearing those so much. And for your recommendations of stories for me to do, which are also incredibly appreciated. I'm always on the hunt, particularly for new Irish folktales. I've asked the question, where are we? Uh, three times, but now I'm finally on it. Where are we in the tawn? We have... Last week we had invoked... Queen Mae Van Allil had uh, invoked single combat with Cú Cullen and now we hear about the warp spasm this very fabled other form of cucullin which i have taken great joy in in adapting and experiencing in this story so we'll chat more as always after the tale itself but here is the Tawn, part 4 on fireside The Tawn, Part Four. The Warp Spasm. The cattle raid of Cooley continued. Queen Maeve and her gradually decreasing army of fifty-seven thousand roamed and ravaged Ulster in search of Dun Cuna, the Brown Bull of Cooley. The armies of Ulster were still recovering from the birth pangs cursed upon them by the goddess Macha. It was still only Cú Chulainn, one man, who was defending Ulster. And he was more than defending. He was winning. Maeve and her husband, King Alil, had requested single combat, where rather than having Cú Chulainn pick off hundreds of their army a day, one warrior would meet the Hound of Ulster at the ford of a river where they would fight. One fight each day. The mutual benefit of this was it gave Ulster more time for the armies to recover from the birth pangs, and for Alil and Maeve, it meant that Chulainn would only kill one of their soldiers per day, rather than a hundred. Even with this slower pace, the body count continued to rise. Days, weeks, months went by, and each time a new warrior would face Chulainn, they would perish. And the more who died the more treacherous Queen Maeve became. Ask Coo for a truce, she requested, of Louis McNoys, leader of one of her allied armies. He himself was a kinsman of Coo and had once sought the hand of the hound's wife, Emer. Louis went to Coo requested the truce, and he agreed. But let there be one more fight, Coo said. "'Let one more warrior face me tomorrow. "'Then we will have a truce.' "'Cuchulain either wanted to see "'what final opponent Maeve could summon, "'or just wanted the truce to be on his own terms. "'After all, Cuchulain had nothing to lose "'one way or the other. "'Instead of sending one soldier to fight Cuchulain, "'Maeve sent six. "'No!' cried Fergus McRoke. Exiled former king of Ulster and most valued ally of Alil and Mave, You must not break the laws of single combat. Kukulan is no ordinary man, replied Maeve. He has proven the equal of hundreds of our men. He'll fight six. Six sons of kings arrived at the ford the next morning and were each cut down by Kukulan. And despite Maeve breaking the rules of single combat, Cucullin held the truce. The Connacht Queen requested a meeting with Cucullin. If this boy is killing my children and decimating my army, I want to look him in the eyes for myself. Maeve knew Cucullin would not be able to resist the opportunity to meet her. The Queen requested the two meet alone and unarmed. Cú was more honourable than Mave, and, arguably, more naive, so was ready to depart according to their agreement, with nothing but his bare hands. You'd be mad to do that, said Lake, Cú charioteer and only companion. Queen Mave has continued to make demands and change the rules, and you agree because this is sport to you. Untrue, said Cú Each hour we delay is another hour for Ulster's armies to recover. Nevertheless, said Lake, Maeve has proven she cannot be trusted, so at least take your sword. Cúchuln listened to the counsel of his friend and took one sword. And just as well he did, because when Cúchuln came face to face with Queen Maeve, the cause of this whole war, on the hill of Folkyard, the Queen was not alone. She had brought fourteen of her most skilled warriors, each armed with a javelin. Before anyone could even speak, fourteen javelins from every angle were launched at Cú at his legs, his back, his neck. But Cú deflected nearly every throw, and even the one or two that made contact could not pierce his skin. Cú Chulainn then picked up one of the javelins and pierced it through each and every one of the fourteen warriors. He left them there on that hill, and when they were all dead, the Hound of Ulster realized that Maeve had returned to the safety of her camp. Cú Chulainn was weary. He had defeated every single one who had opposed him, but he was still only one man, one young man. He was mortal. His recent battle with the Morrigan had taught him that. He had outwitted the battle goddess of war, death, and fate, only to end up unintentionally healing her. The Morrigan reminded Cucullin that while he was valiant, he was still bound by fate and the whim of the gods. Cucullin returned to his camp that night and collapsed by the fire that had been prepared by Laig. There's someone coming. "'said the charioteer. "'Who is it?' asked Kukulun, not even raising his head. "'I don't know,' said Leg. "'that I've never seen anyone or anything like it.' "'A man approached the fireside "'who seemed to glow with a light brighter than the fire itself. "'It was as if the sun was rising at midnight.' He had an imposing but dignified build, with long golden hair, an embroidered dress of green and gold. Cucullan stood. Who who are you? I have been called many things, the stranger said. I am called Ildanok, Master of All Arts, Law long-armed because of my reach in battle. I am a god of the sun and I am a king of the Tour de Danon. I am called Lu, and to you, Hound of Ulster, I am your father from the other world. Cú Chulainn had always known he was different from other warriors. He was of as noble mortal stock as possible, but there always felt like there was more to him. He had not even heard of a legend who had faced off entire armies single-handedly as he had. He was of the Tuatha Dé Danann. He was part god. But he didn't feel it that night. In Lú's embrace, Cú once again became the boy Satanta and began to cry. Father, I am tired. I am weak. My wounds grow larger. The blood does not stop flowing. I have not yet lost a battle, but the day is coming. You have done so well, my child, and all on your own. That is why I am here. Sleep, Chulainn, Sleep, and I will watch over you and heal your wounds. And on request, Chulainn fell into the deepest slumber. And as he slept, Lu carried him to a cave where he made various concoctions of herbs and ointments to heal the deep and many wounds his son had sustained in battle. It had been Maka who had cursed the Red Branch Knights of Ulster to feel the pangs of childbirth whenever they entered conflict. Maka was one part of the Trinity Goddess, the Morrigan. So as much as he wanted his foster son to win, Lu could not overturn the curse of another of the Thua de Danann. But he could aid them. Lu made this chant. I call on Ulster's youth, the boys' troop, who grew up and trained with Cúchulainn, who were all born after Maka cursed King Cuncabar Macnassa and all his people. Come to Cúchulainn's aid. The Boys' Troop were the training division of Ulster's Red Branch Knights, like the Scouts or the Hitler Youth. Coe had become their youngest member at the age of seven. They were as close to brothers as the Hound had. And the morning after, Lou made his chant. Each one of the hundred and fifty members of the Boys' Troop awoke with new vigour. It was Finnabar, son of King Cunkabar McNassa, who rose that morning and approached his fellow troop members and said, Madraharaka, this is a disgrace. Our own Cúchulainn stands alone against the collected armies of four provinces. I don't know about all of you, but I finally feel ready to join the fight. We can take to the field, aid our brother, and give my father more time to band together the rest of the Ulster forces. Who's with me? A great cry went up, along with hurley sticks in the air. They were all with him. Armed with passion and those hurleys, the boys' troop marched towards the armies of Queen Maeve. It was Alil who spotted them. No one had seen Cú in over a day. No one knew where he was. "'The armies of Ulster have recovered,' cried Alil. "'They're sending their boys. It won't be long before they send their men.' Then Mave said, "Cucullin has continuously made short work of our armies on his own. What chance have we if he has allies? But if he does not march with his own boy's troop now, he may not know they have come to his aid. They must be dealt with quickly and mercilessly. And Mave dispatched 150 men with swords to fight those 150 boys with hurleys. They met on Leathall, the hill of the pierced standing stone, and even though it was man on boy, sword on stick, the boy's troop held their own, and every one fell at another's hands. At day's end, the boy's troop were all dead, but so was every warrior Maeve had sent against them. The only one still standing was Conchobar's own son, Vinobar. He stood on the bloodied hill, his dead comrades around him, but he would not return to Aemon Macha. I will not go before my father again until I carry with me the head of Connacht King Alil. And in an adrenaline fueled frenzy, the foolish Finnabar charged the camp of Alil and Mave, where he was cut down in a swift barrage of spears and arrows. After three days and three nights, Kukulun awoke in that same cave, and Lou was gone. It seemed like everything, lou the Morrigan, the entire Bokuna, all had been a massive fever dream. He felt healed, rested, reinvigorated. He looked to his body. He had been healed, but some scars would never heal completely. There, on his skin, Cucullin saw the evidence that none of it had been a dream. The armies of four provinces were still out there, and there was only him to defend Ulster. The hound ran out of the cave and sought his charioteer. Leg, how long was I asleep for? For three days and three nights. Dear gods, that's awful. The armies of Maeve have been spared my retribution for three days Oh, they weren't spared What do you mean? And Lake told Kukullin what had happened How the boy's troop had come to his aid while he slept How they had fought valiantly with mere hurleys as weapons And how each and every one of them had perished Only your cousin Finnebar survived But he would not return without Alil's head And soon he too was cut down. Kukulun fell to his knees, and for the second time that week, began to cry. But these were not the same tears he cried in Lou's arms. These tears burned and turned to rage. Kukulun felt his blood boil. He actually felt hotter, his skin burned. His muscles and veins bulged. He began to lose control. Kukulan began to enter his first warp spasm. The warp spasm of Kukulan is almost indescribable because it had never been seen before or by anyone since. Every muscle and vein in his body ripped and swelled until the young hound trebled in size his body began to twist and contort, it was as if he had no shape at all anymore his eyes sunk deep into his head, his hair grew long down his back, not even Coo own mother could have recognized the monster he became beast though he was Coo was on his feet and every ounce of him was ready for the big fat kill As the morrigan in raven form flew high overhead, the warp-spasm-controlled Hound of Ulster mounted his chariot and charged the armies of Queen Maeve. In the preceding weeks, Cucullan had fought many fights and had partaken in his share of guerrilla warfare, but he had never engaged in an all-out battle with the armies of the four provinces. This was the first battle of the Thorn, and that day became known as Sesric Bresligi. The sixfold slaughter. In retribution for the killing of the boys' troop, Kukulin butchered sixfold in the armies of each province. He rode his chariot through each camp, Mead, Leinster, Munster, and Connacht, killing as many as one in three warriors. It was Unaccountable how many fell that day at the sword and hand and teeth of Cucullin. It was a haze of blood and fear. No one knew what was happening. Who was this monster who was devouring them all? Had he been sent by the gods? Was he himself a god? No one knew. But at the end of the day, when the warp spasm left him, Cucullin retired with not so much as a scratch on him or his horse. Or even his chariot. But thousands of the enemy armies lay dead. And the boy's troop had well and truly been avenged. To be continued. And that is part four of the tawn on Fireside. I hope you enjoyed it. How about that? The Warp Spasm of Coo Oh jeez, oh man. The Warp Spasm is very hard to describe in basically every source you find it. It's, uh, even in Thomas Kinsella's 1969 definitive adaptation, which is my main source for this, increasingly I just grow more and more in love with it as a version. Uh, Detailed, beyond detailed as it is, But even Tom Skinsler describes The Warp Spasm as indescribable. Um, But there are obviously a few things that spring to mind throughout our more contemporary pop culture. The first one that's worth mentioning, that is what I always kind of thought of for The Warp Spasm, is of course Hulk. The Incredible Hulk. The warp spasm is Cullen's Hulk mode. It is invoked. The primary reason for that is it's invoked through a kind of rage. It is. It is a you won't like me when I'm angry scenario, where Cullen mourns for the death of the boy's troop, and is sent into this frenzy. But there are other things it is described as well. It is described as similar to a Viking berserker. So Berserker was a similar thing where it was a trance-like state that a Viking could go into where they seemed to almost unconsciously become these ma- mad, frenzied beasts destroying everything in their paths. Ku seems to maintain some... There seems to be a very swift and calculated uh, nature to Coo fighting still. I suppose because... I would have thought of her her seeing the Warp Spasm that he wouldn't be on his chariot. But the fact that he rides on his chariot would seem to me that Coo Cullen was still in some kind of semblance of control. That he still is an incredibly skilled fighter just three times to size and terrifying, terrifying to behold. It's kind of like a wolfman mode, you know? Like, it's... There could be some debate that as the Hound of Ulster that he becomes like this werewolf kind of creature but the thing that seems most right to me that fits in my head is if anyone is a fan of the dragon ball franchise Uh, dragon ball z was one of my favorite tv shows when i was very small and it's something that when i was on tour in america i was touring with them a lighting designer um who I became very close with, and he was—he uh, was a massive, massive Dragon Ball fan, and uh, myself and uh, my brother Kieran, who would have watched me play with, uh, watched Dragon Ball Z when I was small. He used to, there was used to be one thing he would be able to sit in and watch with me, and uh, we got—we uh, went to Hot Topic in Ameri- America, and we got um, these matching uh, <laughs> vest and shorts. Uh, Dragon Ball Z sets and uh, Kiron got uh, Goku and I got a Vegeta and anyone who knows the series knows that those are the two kind of uh, two heroes of the series and one's the hero and one's kind of the anti-hero starts more of a villain character but it was always my favourite even when he was bad um, so I got the Vegeta and uh, and Kiron got the Goku and we were in uh, Biloxi, I didn't know how, because Hot Topic can have very contemporary pop culture things, but also has like really uh, retro pop culture, relatively speaking, as well. So I didn't know how um, how popular Dragon Ball was, or still was, but we were in Biloxi in Mississippi. Uh, we had a day off, and I was on the beach, and um, Kieran and I both were wearing our... Uh, Matching Dragon Ball Z vests and shorts, and uh, I was outside this restaurant, and some guy just called over to me, and he said, uh, "I like your Vegeta outfit," and I said, uh, "Oh, thanks, thanks very much." He said, "And I saw your boy Goku," <laughs> so we had been spotted separately, uh, but that even pe- that person knew that the two of them must be together. But cut a long story boring. Um, in Dragon Ball Z, they enter a mode called Super Saiyan, which uh, has various different stages, but is this form where their bodies kind of double in size, their all of their muscles and veins bulge, their hair becomes much longer, they see, they glow like the sun. It's very anime. It's very manga. Um, but it's super saiyan. You almost become gain more and more control, but there is a form where they can, because saiyans are uh, saiyans can go into a great ape form as well, where they become a giant monstrous ape, uh, where they do lose more control. So there seems to be, there seems to be huge echoes between the two of them. To me, not that I'm saying obviously in any way that. Um, Super Saiyan, but Super Saiyan mode probably came from some form of Japanese mythology or folklore, which I would be very interested to read about. Like, there's so much, there's so much high fantasy in Japan, like through um Studio Ghibli and through Dragon Ball and Pokemon and and so many great manga and anime shows. That obviously must be rooted in a significant amount of folklore and mythology from that those cultures, and to a degree, there is obviously going to be some amount of mono myth throughout all of humanity. So I've no doubt that there is some form in Japanese mythology as well that has this similar kind of warp spasm mode. That to me, when I visualize Cullen entering the warp spasm, anyway, that but that's like I'd be interested to see what other images other people drum up when they imagine this because people may or may not have noticed but I I don't really need to describe a huge amount of what Cullen looks like Cullen uh, particularly this is a this is true to a degree with a lot of folk characters I think they look like what they look like to you that's that's kind of part of it you know the little red riding hood you only have to picture her little red riding hood but the rest the image just comes to your head and that's that's kind of one of my favorite things about <clears throat> folklore and favorite things about reading and listening to audiobooks in general like there's no doubt that one of the uh, one of the things that's not as nice when you reread like harry potter as as fantastic as the film adaptations were um you can't help but then picture the actors when you're rereading. Whereas which is if you read the books before is is different obviously than what you had in your head as, as spot on as so many of the casts were. So what's really lovely is when they you come across a character in in the books that wasn't really featured in the films like forens, for example, the centaur, who features very in a very small way in the first film, but he becomes the teacher of div- divination in Order of the Phoenix in the book. And so there are several several scenes with him, and it's kind of nice when your imagination can go back to just what it visualizes. And I try and, whether consciously or not, try and do that with these stories where Coo I think, looks like you know, to you, he might look like... He might have your your own face. You might like to picture yourself as Cooke or he might have Brad Pitt's face. You know, he might have anyone's face, and I kind of like that, within, within the realms of what he has to look like, of course, you know. But usually he's just described as very young, with no beard, with long, golden hair. It's thought he has, like, three different kind of hair colours altogether, but it all stays fairly vague enough. But of course, another great, great thing about this episode is we have the return of Lu, my favorite god from the mythological cycle, returns, the Ildanuk. The last time we met Lu, we we prophesied this, that the next time he would appear was to his foster son, Cú Cullan. and and I find it such a beautiful moment that uh, Cú Cullan, who. Who's winning every these every one of these fights, he almost becomes a superman kind of thing, where it can become boring how invincible he is, but he is getting progressively weaker and he is young and he's not he's not long a man and he just needs to be minded. He's just defending the entire of Ulster from these armies. And there's no one to help him. There's just only his charioteer to chat to, and Lou appears to him. And I love that Lou. And Lou can't lift the pangs of Ulster, which still grip them, because the Morri It's the part of the Morrigan who's cursed it. That just, that quite nicely fits with me. That like that wasn't anything that was in any of the versions. That was me just connecting the dots a little bit. But that makes sense to me because the it was the Morrigan who cursed Ulster another god would not have the power or wouldn't out of respect for another of his own people lift that curse but that he could help in by uh, saving the boys troop and that's another connecting the dots there that the boys troop would be able to fight because they would have all been born after the curse um, and it's a very touching moment these lads fight going out fighting with Harley's which, um, in case anyone doesn't know is uh, is the stick fought fought uh, played where the with the game of hurling is played with, um you can look up an image of it if you can't. They're basically like uh like a smushed baseball bat, basically like a flattened baseball bat, so it starts thin and then gets uh, wider round the end, kind of like uh like a hockey stick, but with uh wider at the end or um longer. I'm not describing it very well. As you can probably tell, I'm not a hurler myself, uh, much to my chagrin. The more I read about the uh, myths of Ireland, the more I wish I'd kept up the hurling when I was a bit younger. Maybe it's not too late, not too late for any of us. Okay, I'm going to wrap up things there. But that has been part four of what will probably be... It'll either be six or seven parts. I would imagine there'll be there definitely will be no more than seven parts to the taunt. I gave myself a max of seven. But it could be six. With a couple we've kind of only two big episodes left, but they may take three to do. Um because next time we have the greatest the most famous fight certainly in the taunt. which is Kukulan's fight against Ferdia. And that'll be wonderful to do. And uh, then we will have the final battle itself. But that may take two episodes to do. We shall see. Um, this is actually the second time I've been in the studio in one week. Because actually won't be here next week. Because I am off to Norway. I don't know if I mentioned this at all in the preceding weeks or months. Um, This, I record this on the day, my last day in a Christmas carol in the Gate Theatre, it is the 18th of January when I'm recording this episode, um, which is our last day, it has been an absolutely fantastic run, it's been a dream come true, start to finish two glorious months in one of the most beautiful theatres, one of the best places to work here in Ireland and it's been a constant joy. And then on Wednesday, I fly to Norway for a couple of days. We're going to uh, a city called Tromsø in very northern Norway, which is known as the Paris of the North, or the gateway to the Arctic, um, in to perform at a festival of the Northern Lights with Celtic knights with the show. So very dear to my heart that I toured <coughs> all around America with. I have said that Norse mythology would always seem like the logical next step to this podcast. Because of the deep association that Ireland has with the Vikings, because they were, they were us. They built our towns, they built our cities, they built the city I live in now, and they built the town where I'm from. Um, and they are probably the reason I have uh, I have pale skin, blue eyes, and fair hair as well, and some Danish blood rooted deep, very deep down there. But I cannot wait to go to Norway, um, and I may bring my recording equipment might do a little taster of a Norse special. Um, I think it would be a wasted opportunity if not, because I've never been to any of the Scandinavian countries before. Um, I'm only going for a couple of days, but I can't wait to get to see it, can't wait to see the country, can't wait to see the city. And I can't wait to be performing Celtic Nights again, because it is, again, a show, so very, very dear to my heart. And I'd do it, I'd do it forever. Uh, So I'd go and leave with that. I hope you all enjoyed part four of the ton. Once again, if you're a continued listener, thank you so much for your support. Please do continue to follow me at FiresideBard on Instagram. Um, if you want to contact me, otherwise, my email is firesidebard at gmail.com. Um, please do like and subscribe and leave comments, ratings anywhere you can on iTunes, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. And I'll see you all. You'll hear me next time around the fireside. Thank you and goodbye. This podcast is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. If you want to support this podcast and get a full ad-free episode, sign up to Headstuff Plus.